lately I've been watching some Stephen Wright uh, comedian things. He's all one-liners. Every single joke of his is one-liners. I think he's the one who came up with the idea that, you know, a piece of peanut buttered bread always lands face down on the ground if you drop it, and a cat always lands on its feet. So he thought, you know, let's, let's strap some peanut buttered pieces of bread to a cat and then toss it off a house and see what happens. And someone actually made a video of what happened. It's like the, the, it starts to spin and levitate and it spins so fast a portal to another dimension opens. It's amazing. I, I, thought, I thought that I slightly made that joke up. Do you know what I mean? By adapting other people's jokes. And then uh, somebody came to me on break after I shared that and they showed me a video of that. Like lightning's coming out of the cat as it's spinning faster than you can watch and then this portal opens and starts to suck in everything into a black hole. And I was like, oh, man, it's already been done. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit this morning about the kingdom of God message, the, the theme of the kingdom of God. Uh, this Thursday, we talked about, at DTS, we talked about a biblical basis for healing. And one of the things, one of the points that we made there was that Uh, Jesus' message, his gospel was that the kingdom has arrived. And then the message of the kingdom was marked with healings, interestingly enough. Um, And I pointed out then that I was not trained in the gospel of the kingdom. It was the only gospel Jesus preached, but it was not the gospel that I was trained in. I was trained in the American gospel of individual salvation. Does that make sense? Individual salvation, by which I mean, get your sins forgiven, live a moral life, and when you die, you go to heaven. It's not saying that you go to heaven because you live a moral life, but it is saying that living a moral life and having your sins forgiven is the essence of what the faith is about on this side of heaven. And then later, we're not really sure what it is, but it probably involves gold streets and lots of uh, southern gospel music. With four-part harmony. Mm-hmm. And i got to say, there's nothing wrong with some southern gospel music and some four-part harmony. But that's not really a full gospel, is it? That's not really a full biblical vision of what the, the good news that Jesus announced involves. Yes, it involves forgiveness of sins, and yes, it involves moral transformation, and yes, it involves heaven after this life ends, but it involves so much more that um, I was not really trained and equipped for. So it seems like um, that's kind of the Protestant American thing is uh, forgiveness of sins and, and moral living in heaven when you die. And the moral living is optional depending on the denomination. I'll just throw that out there as a slightly, slight, like a half serious joke. And then you, then you got the charismatic Christians, which essentially accept that Protestant vision, but just add a few things to it. They add some experiential encounters with God and add a few spiritual gifts, but largely keep that same individual salvation gospel intact. And you could say, well, you, go, you can go back to the Catholics and say, well, they kind of had a similar deal It's just change the mechanism. Religion replaces beliefs, because Protestants are big on beliefs. Believe this, and then you're saved. Catholics are more like, submit to this mechanism, and then you'll be saved. 
But none of these are really the kingdom that Jesus preached, are they? And so he shows up and his good news, his announcement is, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. And then all of the rest of his teachings are about the kingdom. All of them. This is not an exaggeration. And so he's constantly telling stories about what the kingdom is. What's the next word? Like. Notice he doesn't say the kingdom is. He's describing its characteristics. Because what it is is relatively simple. The kingdom is God's rule. But the question that he is struggling to constantly talk about and then demonstrate, and he always combines the two, never separates the two, the the question he's constantly answering is what's it like when God's will is done on earth for a change? What is it like when God's will is done on earth for a change? So when he says, and I say for a change, meaning it's really rare for God's will to be done in a human life. It's really, really, really rare. Of course, that's the opposite of what I believed when I entered the Christian life. I was tutored and trained by Calvinists, and I love, love my Calvinist friends, and love their Calvinist theology. Contrary to popular opinion, disagreeing with someone doesn't mean you don't respect them. Disagreeing with someone doesn't mean you don't like them. Disagreeing with someone doesn't mean you don't learn from them. Disagreeing with someone doesn't mean you have days where you think maybe they're right. Maybe I'm stupid. But when I was a Calvinist, I basically believed God's will is always done every day, period, everywhere. And the things that look like they aren't his will is a dramatic illusion based on the limitations of the human point of view. I came to a very different belief later. And it was really when I began to reckon with the person of Jesus and let Jesus be the the one who reveals God's will, not history, when I looked to Jesus as revelation, not human history, that's when my convictions on this topic dramatically changed. And he had this central prayer that he taught his disciples to pray when they asked him, hey, teach us to pray. He said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, let your name be regarded as holy on earth as in heaven. Let your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And let your will be done on earth as in heaven. That's the central request. In heaven, his name is perfectly regarded as holy, loved above all other things. God is perfectly loved, worshipped, served, adored, celebrated, and reverenced. And as a consequence, his will is perfectly done, and his kingdom is perfectly expressed. But down here on earth, it doesn't look that way. Down here on earth, his name isn't properly reverenced most of the time in most of the places. His will is rarely done and his kingdom is hardly finding the kind of expression that it will find eventually. How do you like that? Does that sound like a depressing gospel? And here's the good news. 
Jesus has arrived on the scene. He has inaugurated the kingdom, planted himself in the ground like a seed, and now from his death and resurrection, something new is springing up from the soil of human civilization called the church. The church is not the same thing as the kingdom, but the church belongs to the kingdom. The church is people, not buildings, not denominations, not organizations. It's people. But these people are not the kingdom. I'm going to be very strong on that point. In fact, the church, through the book of Acts, is usually playing catch-up with the kingdom. The kingdom is moving out on ahead. Jesus is expressing his goodness and his life everywhere and in every human life. And anywhere he finds a landing pad, he'll take it, even if Christians haven't signed off on it yet. So, for example, in Acts chapter 10, you find Cornelius, who's baptized in the Holy Spirit before Peter gets an opportunity to baptize him. And in fact, Peter gets dragged to this evangelistic encounter because the Holy Spirit has already been working in Cornelius' life. In fact, it says that his prayers and his gifts to the poor have come up as a pleasing offering in the sight of the Lord. Are you catching this? He had favor with God before Peter entered the situation. He had favor with God before Peter even entered the room. That's fascinating. His prayers were heard and were pleasing the Lord. Let me get this, let me get this straight. I'm going to just throw this out there. There's a moment when Peter preaches the gospel. There's a moment. He preaches the gospel. You could, if you, could, you could write down the time stamp when it happened. You could mark the moment when the Holy Spirit came. Whoosh. And Peter says, what? That's not supposed to happen. They're not even Jewish. They should join themselves to being Jewish first. Let me ask you this. Let's say Peter dies on the way to Cornelius' house. And then Cornelius keels over dead before a messenger ever comes and shares shares with him about the Messiah Jesus. Does he go to hell? I think you guys are scared of giving me the, the answer you really believe. Tim Freed said, no. So Enoch walked with God. Did he know the name Jesus? Come on, y'all. It's not a trick question. Enoch wasn't water baptized? Or, or which one? Cornelius or Enoch? Either one. Garth says, some people say neither were water baptized, so they're out. I had a disgusting lunch with someone who wasted my time giving me indigestion, trying to argue with me that water baptism is absolutely essential and required, and without it, no one is saved. All right, so there are also people who say if you're not a member, probably I'm guessing of their church, you don't get to heaven. There are others who think that if you are members of the other church, definitely not getting to heaven. So what's my point? Is my point, forget evangelism? We don't know. That's a great answer. Who said that? That's brilliant. I like that answer. It's when the, te- when the teacher's trying to fish for something and you're not sure if he's looking for a, a bass or a carp or a perch or what is he going for it's a frog he wants a frog 
What's my point? Is my point that there's another way to salvation other than Jesus? Absolutely not. What is my point? My point is that Jesus is at work outside of and in advance of the church. Jesus' work is called the kingdom. God the Father's work is called the kingdom. And the kingdom is as broad and as wide as the universe. And it has a scope, it has an aim that, yes, involves forgiveness of sins and and a transformed life in heaven when you die, but so much more. God's intention is the restoration of the entire creation. Colossians, Paul talks about the blood of Jesus being the means by which God reconciled all things to himself. Souls, yes, but also star systems. Stupid horseshoe crabs that flip themselves over on their back and go, oh, I'm going to die. What are they doing over there? You could, you could take all day in the one, there's a couple of weeks where they decide to be real suicidal. And oh, man, you could spend days. Okay, one day they're going to stop that behavior. But, but all creation has been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. Which means that the blood of Jesus has a scope, has a power, and has a, has a good news aspect to it that's way beyond our little stories. So Jesus shows up not preaching the gospel of American individual salvation at all. But rather, he has good news. God's will is breaking into this broken world for a change. Things are being set right because I'm here, says Jesus. And if you'll come under my lordship, things in, in, things in you and through you and around you will also begin to be transformed and the kingdom of God is like. And so then he goes on describing, again, not defining, describing what it's like when God's reign breaks into the present a world that's under the conditions of sin. I don't know, if sometimes when I don't have the words to describe things, I just make hand gestures. Doesn't really help though. So what did Jesus preach? He preached the kingdom. And what did he believe? Now, this is just so huge to me. What did Jesus believe? Because I have this deep conviction in my belly that we won't, we won't see, we won't look like Jesus until we learn to see like Jesus. That, what, that we, we won't do naturally and easily what Jesus has called us to until we see what he sees intuitively and habitually. And so that's, those are questions to really dig into. What does Jesus believe? What does he believe? And what does it look like for a human to live inside of his good news about the kingdom breaking in? Because every belief looks like something. And there are some people whose beliefs are not welcome in my heart because I don't want the fruit they're bearing. There was a, a theologian named Paul Tillich, and I discovered him in college, and I was so excited because he used big words and smart ideas. He was very philosophical. In fact, he was a polymath. He could, he could teach any subject. If any of the professors at his university were skipping or were sick or needed someone to sub in, he could fill in for anything. He could fill in for physics. He could fill in for philosophy. He could fill in for logic. He could fill in for history. He could fill in for languages. He could fill in for anything because the man was just a, a polymath. That means he's good at everything. And I, when I discovered the theology of Paul Tillich, I was like, wow, I've never heard anyone express the faith in such sweeping intellectual terms. And I had a professor come to me and say, be careful. I said, why? 
Why should I be careful? This guy's amazing. I love what he's saying. He wrote a book called The Courage to Be. It's a fine piece of existential rhetoric. The Courage to Be. He talks about the demonic and the divine and how those, those manifest themselves in a human and in a society and in human history. And I thought, boy, this guy's insightful. And Dr. Reitmeyer says, be careful. I said, why? And then he says, you don't want to live like him. I didn't. I brushed it off. Whatever, Dr. Reitmeyer. Then later I discovered that this guy's wife said, Paul's a genius. It would be such a shame to try to tie a genius like Paul down to one woman. Oh, crap. What are we doing now? Maybe I don't like this guy's book. Well, Tim, you know, his convictions might be different from his life. I doubt it. So then that same professor says to me, well, he came to lecture at a theological you know, conference. And after he was done, he thought there was enough time in between. This feels like slander, but it's true. In between the end of the lectures and the plane leaving, he thought maybe he could go to the strip club. There's another preacher I know who I won't name. And he seems right, doctrinally. But he's a massive jerk. And half his message seems to be pointing out the flaws and failures of his opponents who happen to be Christians. And I have friends that really enjoy this man, although they have noticed that in his aging years he seems to be becoming somewhat embittered. But they're not sure why. And I said... I don't want to listen to his messages no matter how biblical they are because I don't want that bitterness to get on me. This is what I'm saying. Every belief looks like something. It has outcomes. It has has an outward fruit. It It takes hold and produces a certain life. Now, it is very true that sometimes the things we claim to believe are not the things that we are deeply rooted in that we actually believe. I get that. You're with me? Sometimes the things we say we believe are not the things that we live by because they're not our deeply embedded beliefs. I get that. But I want to know what Jesus' deeply embedded beliefs are that caused his life to to take the shape that that it took. It's, it's when I, one night, you know, Jesus is on the couch next to me. I suppose that's probably true a lot of the time. But in this night, I saw it. And he said, I'd love to take you inside here and show you what it's like when love is all there is. And you know how the Lord can say one sentence, and like by saying one sentence, he actually says like four paragraphs in that sentence. And I understood that what he was saying was that because his only motivation is love in all that he does, he's protected from so many things that we humans get tripped up by, there's no insecurity to cause him to become, you know, incorrectly defensive. There's no bitterness in him. There's no self-interest 
There's no selfishness, therefore there's no self-protection. There are things he doesn't get tripped up by because his only motivation is love. Why would he share that with me? So I would go, must be nice being you? No, he already said, I'd like to take you inside my heart and show you what it's like when love is all there is. He wants to teach us what it, what it looks like when Jesus is king, when Jesus is really Lord in our heart, in our life, in, in our lives, in many people's lives. So what does it look like? Well, the kingdom looks like a mom gets her dead son back, right? What does it look like? It looks like a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. Not only does she not get the punishment she deserves, but she gets the re- restoration that she's worth. In the, king, in the kingdom, what you deserve is less important than what you're worth. And the, in the kingdom is like something of great worth is lost and the woman loses the coin in search of it. The shepherd loses one sheep, leaves the 99 in search of it. The father loses a son. And when that son returns, throws a party. and It's difficult for the older son to understand. In the kingdom is like a mustard seed, which seems so insignificant and tiny, but once it's planted in the soil, it grows up to become massive and large, or the kingdom is like some yeast that a woman mixed into a a lump of dough until that little bit of yeast, which seems so insignificant, has affected and transformed and changed the entire lump. What's the point? This kingdom looks so insignificant. It looks so irrelevant. It looks like it's not going to win. It looks like these dominant forces of the world have all the power and all the control and they'll just crush it and then it will move, we'll move on with history. Without it, it's not going to go that way. The kingdom is growing. It's expanding. Just this morning, I was reading an article of the church in the country of Iran. I know, we all want to then say... Well, I just walked, but uh, if you want to run. Um, and the church in Iran is a story of a hostile Islamic culture that is not open, you would think. It's not open legally. It's not open officially to the gospel. And yet, it's the fastest growing Christian movement on the planet. We went from a couple hundred a while back to hundreds of thousands verified. And they're thinking it may be more like millions of baptized, discipled believers, and it's happening in a context of persecution. It's the yeast. It's the yeast that that seems so insignificant, and yet, when people find out that they're loved, and that God isn't measuring them up and finding them wanting, but that he's taken on himself all of that, so that he's, he's now giving them as a gift the love and the purpose and the meaning and the hope and the forgiveness and the redemption, they could never bring themselves. That is a very attractive message to people who've struggled all their lives to find what am I here on earth for? What am I here on earth for? You know, and it's like never underestimate the power of love and acceptance. Never underestimate the power of kindness embodied. And that's what Jesus does. See, because he's not just a doctrinal idea, because he's a real living person, when he's proclaimed, 
He actually shows up. He actually does. Notice in the kingdom of God, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 8 here eventually, so if you'd you'd like to preemptively get there. But notice what Jesus does in his preaching ministry and in his, I see, I even hate to use that word. That's such a churchy word, ministry. You know what I'm saying? I am so full of Christianese that I don't even know how to get completely out of it. When Jesus, see, we even use words like, Walk it out, right? That's a metaphor. <laughs> I struggle sometimes. But Jesus always, always had, had this like balance, is that the right word for it? Between doing the stuff and explaining the stuff. Either he would show up and do the stuff. What is the kingdom like? Well, how did the world become? Well, the world became the way it is because of sin. So when God's will is done for a change, Everything that sin has affected, including sickness, gets dealt with, including demonic, including social broken structures, gets dealt with. Look, when the kingdom takes hold, pollution in your water supply gets dealt with. Because you know that wouldn't have flown in Genesis 2. Hey, we're in charge of this. We're supposed to express God's good, loving reign over this planet. Let's dump this toxic sludge in this river. Someone else's problem. So how did it get to where Christians are often the enemies of ecological responsibility? That's weird to me. Maybe it's because ecology has been co-opted by a political party as though it's their property. And so then we in reaction said, well, we don't belong to that party, so we're not for that too. Well, hold on now. If it belongs to Jesus, it's ours, no matter which party seems to be going for it. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't know how we get there. But when the kingdom comes, everything that sin has touched gets dealt with. Yes, forgiveness. Yes, broken relationship with God, but also broken relationship with each other gets dealt with. So what does it mean... The kingdom of God. I just think it's interesting that Jesus, rather than defining the kingdom, is constantly describing the kingdom and using comparison, using metaphor to do it. It must mean it's the language of the heart, doesn't it? Because whenever humans talk about what's most important to us, we stop speaking literally. Because imagine if I tried to tell my wife literally that I loved her. Hi, Carrie. I have become accustomed to the biochemical uh, and neurological... Uh, patterns that fire in my brain causing me to experience a sensation of uh, euphoric positivity you know when my sensory inputs discern that your physical person is within the immediate vicinity of mine what what the heck dude that's like less clear than if you'd said you complete me I feel happy when you're around you know I like you you're like a freaking Phone charger, you know what I mean? For my heart. You know what I'm saying? You're like, except wireless, wireless phone charger, that's more like a cradle, you know? I find you pleasing both to my eye and to my heart. You are like, see, what is that? Why, when we talk about what matters most, do we revert to parables? I don't know, but I think that must mean that this kingdom, you could technically describe it, just like, 
what is water? It's H2O. But does H2O, does that properly convey the sense of grandeur and wonder you feel when you stand overlooking the ocean? Like when the sun's rising and dawn is just broken and like the sky's glorious. See, I even revert to words like glorious. Do you know what I mean? Can I show you like the chemical equation for it? And be like, this is H2O. See, doesn't that make you feel awe and wonderment? And the ancient ocean that will be unbothered by all the supposed problems in your life and will remain long after you're dead, you know, doesn't convey any of that stuff. So when I say the kingdom of God is where God's rule comes to earth, that's lame. It's technically correct, but it's just as lame as trying to give a literal straightforward answer to how I feel about my wife. So Jesus reverts to metaphor and comparison and poetry because the kingdom is what is, is huge in his heart and it's the best news he can think of, which must make it pretty dang good. And the kingdom is so central for us that our baptism is a reenactment of the central conviction of the kingdom. Our baptisms are a physical reenactment of it. The Lord's Supper, every time we do that, is a physical reenactment I feel like I'm kind of struggling right now, this particular part of the sermon. And then telling you about it is probably something that you shouldn't do as a, as a preacher either. You know what I mean? Right here in the notes it says, weak points yell louder. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't say that. I'm kidding. Maybe they won't notice if I just increase the volume. No, but every parable of Jesus is trying to answer the question, what is the kingdom like? He's more interested in describing it than in defining it. And he's more interested in people entering it and experiencing it than being able to explain it. Which is fascinating, right? He declares it and then he gives you an encounter with it. And I, man, I would love if that's how we did it. That, that there was just as much bringing an encounter with what's, what's the kingdom like as trying to convince people to accept our ideas about the kingdom. You know, more praying for the sick and seeing healing, more giving prophecies, more acts of kindness and compassion, unprovoked, just because God, God loves them and I love them and I'm going to live out love for them, and less arguing you and threatening you and manipulating you to come say a prayer so you can agree with me. By all means, say a prayer. Actually, yesterday at Lowe's, uh, the gal checking, checking me out with my... Not, she wasn't checking me out. She did not find me attractive. <laughs> Um, she found me decidedly unattractive. Uh, she was receiving my money in the name of Lowe's. Uh, my, so that's clear. We made that clear. And I wasn't checking her out either, just to be honest and clear with everyone. She said she had really bad seasonal allergies, and I said, with a big smile on my face, you know how my smile's really winsome. You know what I mean? So winsome. Apparently not, because I said, oh, can I pray for that? And she said, no. <laughs> and I said, oh, it'll only take a second. And she goes, oh, I know. And I said, okay. And then we continued with a positive exchange. And I was, that was the least rejected I've ever felt while being rejected. I, I thought, well, this is wonderful. And she gets all the credit because if she had been mean-spirited, I probably would have got my feelings hurt. Uh, I don't know why I'm saying any of that. I know why. Because my goal there was not... Hey, you need Jesus, you're going to hell. Do you know him? Because if you don't, you're going to hell forever. Hell's hot. Forever's a long time. Fire bad. Fire bad. 
Wouldn't that be so weird? Notice Jesus never did that. That's not his gospel. But that, guess what? That's a lot of our thinking. We're like, why? why? Like, Tammy had a post the other week that said something like, if the only, only reason to follow Jesus is threats of hell, you're doing it wrong. And I was like, man, that is 100% biblical. Hi, how you doing? Just like the picture of Jesus standing outside and knocking on the door. And he says, hey, let me in. And the guy says, why should I? And he goes, because of what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. We're all smiling because we're like, we're really happy God's not like that. But there's a ton of people who really do think he is like that. And that's their gospel. I got good news for you, brother. God's in a bad mood and it's because of you. <laughs> you got to sign this card quick before it, like he lets, we let him off the chain. But we got to give people an encounter like Jesus did of the kingdom. If we're going to, if we start to see like he sees and think like he thinks and live like he lives, our gospel will start to be a kingdom gospel where we become the embodiment of what God's about in setting the world right. What God's about in bringing love into a situation that actually lifts a finger to help for a change. Because religion, obviously, is categorized by telling you what's wrong with you, not helping you stop it. (laughs) Hey, you better stop doing that or we're all going to not talk to you anymore. Put your name on a list of people who can't have this bread. Seems pretty effective at changing people for the better. Now, I'm not even actually saying there's never a time and a place to create the boundary around, you know, who has clearly chosen by their choices to to not do God's will. So that, yes, I get it. Church discipline is biblical. But I'm saying church discipline is not like the only thing we do to disciple people, is it? Or maybe to put it better, love is the way of the kingdom. Love is the way to make disciples. So Jesus has this balance. The kingdom has this balance of explanation and demonstration. So he never just comes and says, hey, I have an argument in favor of God existing and you guys should believe it. Here's my series of arguments. Sign a card at the back. Join my thing. This is all we do. We talk. We have endless conversations about ideas because we're brilliant. The end. No, he says the kingdom's at hand. Now, okay, You really need some love. You really need some help. You really need some healing. We're going to give you that. Also, you're hungry, so we're going to feed you food. It's ministry to the whole person, and it's demonstration in action. You with me? Because that's what it's like when the kingdom comes. So Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean, at hand? Do you guys remember when Michael Hutchings came a few years back? In my mind, it was like five minutes ago, but in real life, it was probably like eight years ago. Anyone, Michael Hutchings, he wore golden tennis shoes. He had golden Converse All-Stars. No one remembers his golden Converse All-Stars except me. They were his revival shoes. He, he's like, these are my kingdom shoes. I wear these everywhere I go where I bring the kingdom. Yes, indeedy. You know, actually, no, he didn't say yes, indeedy. That's Carl's job. Michael Hutchings said that when Jesus said the kingdom's at hand, it's like a grocery store saying that they have something in inventory. At hand means it's presently here and available. If you'd like, I can go get you some because we have it at hand. The kingdom of God is presently available because Jesus came. 
And, and any heart that wants in on it can get in on it now. Now, weirdly, any heart that doesn't want in on it won't be forced. And that's why there's such a place as hell. Does that make sense? Hell wasn't created for people. According to Matthew 25, Jesus, it was created for the devil and his angels. And the only reason people end up there is because they don't have space in their heart for the kingdom of God. The kingdom is in stock. That doesn't sound right, but it is. The kingdom's in your midst. The kingdom's available. And not only is it available, but the kingdom that's here now, in part, will one day take over. And earth will look like heaven. So one of the weird parts of the kingdom is like, if you're an investment person, if you get in and buy a bunch of stock when a company's tiny, and then that company blows up and becomes hugely successful, dude, that's brilliant. You can sell all that stock now and make a killing. And we've got this opportunity because the kingdom, early adopters might pay a real high price, but the value of this stock will only continue to rise until one day it takes over. In fact, the weirdest thing is in the book of Revelation, you see that those who've paid the highest price get the most rewards. Guess who paid the highest price? The martyrs who were hated and killed as though they were evil for the testimony of Jesus, even beheaded. But in the kingdom to come, they'll, they have a special, it says they're beneath the throne. What is that? What is this special proximity to God's throne that they have? I'm intrigued by all these things. But the kingdom might look like it's losing. It's not losing. It's not losing. It's taking over. All right, so I said we were going to read this, and now here we go. Everything I just said is introduction. So that was the introduction to the sermon. What time is it, by the way? Oh, perfect. We're right on time. Listen to the word of the Lord. But the believers were scattered, preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message. Circle the word hear and see. All right, circle the word see. Hear and see. Hear it. When the, when the kingdom is preached, you can hear it, but you can, but you can also see it. Because again, it's not just ideas. It's not just words on a page. Explain it. Demonstrate it. Hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out. That's an action, isn't it? Those spirits would be welcomed into a lot of our churches. They'd be fine with everything happening for 30 years of religion. They wouldn't mind that we got very emotional on the third verse of the third song. But when the kingdom comes, they scream and leave. 
Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed, even though their church told them it was God's will to form character in them. So there was great joy in that city. Notice that. There was great joy in the city because the kingdom came. Man, that's like, come on. And a man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of the good news. Look at his gospel, everyone. The good news. What did Philip preach? Concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Messiah. As a result, many men and women were baptized. And then Simon himself was baptized, and he began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. So then it says the apostles find out about this. By the way, these are Samaritans. Like These are not Jews. These are the sworn enemy of the Jews. So kingdom is on ahead, moving way out front of the church. And the church is playing catch-up going, I hate that guy, but apparently Jesus loves him. What am I going to do? I guess I'll lay hands on him. So as soon as they arrived, the, the apostles prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'll let you struggle with whatever that's all about. Then Peter and John laid their hands on these believers and something visible and tangible and experiential and undeniable happened that everyone could see with their eyeballs. They didn't have to doctrinally believe that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit without any outward evidence whatsoever. No, no one could deny it. Just throwing that out there for your consumption. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given, when the apostles laid their hands on them, he tried to buy it, basically. We're going to end right there. That passage, think about it, and its implications for this gospel of the kingdom. Go ahead and stand.